All right, here we are then. Here we are now. And today, I'd like to talk about death dynamics. And I want to take a little bit of a different approach to this because normally when we talk about death, it becomes very serious, very profound, very deep, very meaningful, very heartfelt, and all the rest of it. And that's beautiful. That's great. We love to go into that sort of space. It's very important to have reverence, respect for oneself and for life and the existential nature of this situation that we find ourselves in. But I want to take a little bit of a different approach. I want us to sort of brainstorm together some of the little easy things, simple things that you might not have thought about as a way of just getting into death dynamics, the nature of death, the situation of your death, the contemplation of your mortality. And I think we'll get into some interesting metrics. I think we will uncover underlying assumptions as we go and work with them. But let's see what this is. Let's actually see what's it going to mean for you to die. What is this situation going to be? So here's how we go about doing this. Think of the time you're going to die. Just have a rough rough sort of estimate. And acknowledge the fact that you are going to die. But have you thought about what day of the week you want to die on? Do you think a Monday would be a good day to die on? Or would a Friday be better? Maybe Wednesday, maybe Sunday. And if you're anything like me, you can immediately sense that there is a flavor to the day. There is something different from Monday to Friday. And yet also, probably, by the time you do eventually have to face your death, you won't care much about whether it's Monday or Friday. That difference won't be there. What about the time of day? You think it's better to die in the morning? Or around lunchtime? Or nighttime? Or in the middle of the night? I don't know. I think morning is morning is like, you know, an optimistic sort of time. Whereas the middle of the night, that's sort of like hmm. Sort of like sneaking off, isn't it? Sort of like going without a trace. What about the time of year? Have you considered that? Would you want to die in winter? Would you want to die in spring, summer, autumn? Now, that's that's similar to the sort of time of day, isn't it? Because you think, well, spring is optimistic and open and cheerful. And winter is a bit cold, a bit snuggly. But that might be something you like. That might be something that really resonates with you. 
to be attuned to the seasons. Now, of course, it might be that you're not attuned to the seasons at all. It might be that you're living in air conditioning and it really makes no difference whether it's winter, summer, spring or autumn. It might also be that it does make a big difference depending on where you will most likely be. Okay, what about this one? Do you want to be sitting or lying down when you die? What sort of position do you want to be in? There is this old Zen story of the monk that died standing on his head. (laughs) It's a very charming story. Probably I'll tell it to you one day. What about before or after eating? You want to have a meal and then die? Or you want to be digested? Now, of course, that does get into some big assumptions about the quality of your health when you die. And I mean, those are all assumptions we're going to look at in a moment. But if you had the choice, if you could, would you say you want to die just after a meal? Or just before a meal, or just not really in particular. And what about just more generally where you want to die? Do you want to die in a hospital? Do you want to die in palliative care? Do you want to die in your own home? Or do you want to die elsewhere? Is there a specific place you'd like to die? Now, of course, that does depend largely on logistics and your condition. But if you had the choice, I mean, if it's just between two things, hospital or home, which would you prefer? Now, here's a big one. Drugs or no drugs? I think for many people, they say, give me the drugs because I don't want pain. And the thing there is that when you have painkillers, you actually go numb for a lot of them, depending on the nature of them, of the way they are given to you, and just what type they are. Right? There's a whole variety of painkillers, and that does depend largely on your condition. But some people, believe it or not, they actually choose not to have the drug because they want to remain conscious. They want to feel the experience. So that's that's really a big one. We need to sort of Skim over that for now. Maybe we'll circle back to it. But I don't want to sort of underestimate how far that goes, that choice of drugs or not, painkillers or not. Now, here's another one. Conscious or not. Do you want to die in your sleep? you want to die while you're in a coma? Or do you want to die a conscious death? Do Do you actually want to see it coming? Do you want to sense it? That's also a big one that we need to discuss again and again in many ways. Because what that really means, well, that could mean a lot of things. To die a conscious death. What about this one? Do you want to die alone or with people? This one's deeper than you think because some people might think, well, I need to make a family. I need to get married and I need to sort of build up friends around me and have this network of connection of people because I don't want to die alone. 
And of course, <laughs> this is not how it works. And I don't think I don't think people think that in a literal sense. They sort of think it in a subconscious way, right? That's just sort of the general mechanism at work. But what you realize that is that even if you're married or not, that's not going to determine whether you die alone or not. And it's not even that you're going to die alone if there is someone in the room with you or not at time of death, right? There can be someone, there can be people in the room with you when you're dying, as you die, and yet you still die alone. Because, of course, what it means to be with someone is the whole metric, right? That, that is exactly the point. That is exactly the thing we're trying to reveal. What does it mean to be with someone? What does it mean to connect with someone? What does it mean for someone to be there? Does it mean that they're just in the room looking at you? Or does it mean they understand something of your experience? You know, you can be in the room and in your mind be somewhere else. Be thinking about something else. (laughs) There's a lot to that one. We could probably go deeper on that. Because that really reveals everything about relationships. You can also add what kind of people you want to die with. Whether they are personally known to you or not. What about this? What would you want your last words to be? Can you think of something to say that would be the last thing that you say? What would the last sounds you would like to hear? What would be the sounds that are happening in the room as you die? What sort of feelings would you like to have? You want to be anxious of the coming unknown? You want to be regretful? Do you want to be excited? Believe it or not, people actually can get excited over death. And not in a nihilistic way, in a sense that, oh, the coming relief is finally here, but excited in the sense of this is the new adventure. This is a new experience. This is the crescendo. Now, crescendo is a big thing unto itself, right? That really gets to the point of the feelings that you want to feel moments before your death. And in some ways, it's, it's guaranteed to be a crescendo of the feelings that you have. The emotional and experiential profile that you have is going to crescendo when you die. And if that's a negative profile, then you'll have this negative feeling. And if it's positive, then you'll have this positive feeling. And you might say, well, maybe my emotions and feelings won't be so extravagant. Maybe I'll be indifferent. Well, that's actually an emotion. Indifference, apathy, just sort of, ugh. Well, that's also a feeling. 
Now, what sort of sites do you want to have as your last site? Would you prefer a garden? Or some artworks hanging on the walls? Or someone's face to be looking into someone's eyes? To be the last thing you see before you close your eyes for the last time? And most probably knowing that it will be the last thing that you see. What would you choose for that? And then also what smells. What's the last thing you want to smell? What will the smell in the room be like? Now, here's another one. This is sort of pretty straightforward and more more general. How old do you want to be when you die? You think 70 is a good age to die? You think 80 is a good old age to die? You think 90 is a good old age to die? And this can trigger a lot because, well, it depends on what you want to do. It depends entirely on your condition. And if people are having a good time, well, then really they don't see the problem in going on living. And if people are having a rotten time, then they don't really see the point on going on living, right? It exactly reveals, (laughs) it exactly reveals how you feel about life. This is why it's so important. This is why it's so powerful to think about these things. And here's another one. Which country do you want to die in? you want to die in your home country or do you want to die overseas? <laughs> I remember talking to a friend about this. And she said her kids came to her and said, don't die overseas because that'll be a whole lot of paperwork to get your body back. And her response was like... <laughs> Sort of to laugh and say, as if I have a choice. Do you think I really care? (laughs) What are you going to do to me? (laughs) Anyway, that's another funny one. So, now that we've said some of those basic things, let's get into a different component of what you're going to be looking at in your life around the moment of death and in the days leading up to it. So, what is it when you're dying that you'd like to be able to remember about your life? What exactly is your relationship to memory? Your ability to remember. Your experience of remembering. Your skill in remembering. How strong do you want to be able to remember? How clearly do you want to be able to remember? And of course, what exactly is it? 
you want to remember. Now, of course, you want to remember the good things. You want to be able to recall the good times. You want to be able to sit back at the end of your life and to still be able to see all the things that happened. And that is a skill that can be developed. That is something that takes practice. That is a thing that takes development and has techniques. We have techniques for these things. Now, of course, for most people, how it is, well, some of the really good things stand out and a lot of the really bad things stand out. And they're sort of there with their memories happening to them and sometimes not happening to them and they're just sort of at the whims of it. Right? They're at the mercy of their memories. What do you want to regret about your life? Of course, you want to say, I have no regrets. I remember one psychologist, or one counselor said they had patients who would say they have no regrets. And his answer to that was, well, you haven't lived. And regret is very closely related to memory. It's a relationship that you have with a phenomenon within yourself. Because you might own your regrets. You might say, yeah, I've I've done terrible things. I've done things that I wouldn't do again. But I did learn from them. Right? It's so easy in so many ways when you own those to turn them into a positive. But we resist our regrets. In so many ways. And we can blame other people for them. We can blame the situation for them. We can blame the world for them. Life is this problem. I wish this relationship would have turned out differently. In so many ways, a regret is something that we feel powerless to change about ourselves. And there's a lot to that. All right, what about hope? If we've talked about memory and regret, what about hope? What do you want to hope for? Now, you see immediately that that is very different to the hope that you have now, right? You have hopes for yourself, basically, now. I hope I'll make this certain money. I hope I'll have this certain connection. I hope I'll get to have this lifestyle. I hope I'll get to this place. I hope I'll get to see this person again. But when you're dying, of course, all of that goes out the window. You're hoping for others. I hope for my family. I hope for the world. And of course, it's not guaranteed that you would necessarily have that switch. You can still be Very much self-centered and thinking hope for yourself. Right up until the last minute. What do you want to believe when you die? How does belief come into this? And what do you want to see yourself as, as you die? 
You want to see yourself as a good person. Many people did terrible atrocities in their lifetime and yet went to the grave absolutely convinced that they were good people. They were a good person. And that really does make you think, doesn't it? That really is something you have to consider for yourself. On another level, what sort of attitude do you want to have? You want to have a can-do attitude? You want to have a positive attitude? Maybe attitude is not quite as deep as belief or what you see as yourself, but it's still something that's there. What about this one? What do you want to learn? What do you want to see as the lesson as you die? What sort of insight do you want to be having? What is it that you want to be discovering as a new, right? The newness. It's so easy to get into this thing of death of, oh, everything is past. I've already done my life. There's nothing to gain. There's no point in doing anything. I'm in this situation. It's not really going to change much. This just is how it is. I just need to accept it. But the newness of things, the freshness, aliveness. Do you want to feel like death really is a learning experience? And it might be that you actually haven't learned something for years. It is possible to go decades without learning something. And what do you want to know? What do you want to know for sure as you're dying? What do you want to have as something that is just solid, true, and tried within you? Something that is unshakable. What is, what is going to be unshakable in your mind? That you hold without a shadow of a doubt. Now, people put all sorts of things (laughs) in that category, in that position. But that's something you, you really have to see as, well, that's a conscious choice. That can be a conscious choice. I mean, it's not a given. Right? We hold our beliefs, we hold our knowledge in a certain way. And whether it's conscious or not is, well, the difference of awareness, the difference of doing the work of self-knowledge. Doing the work of actually, well, testing ourselves. Okay, so now let's take a look at some of the more sort of down-to-earth practical things because you realize that through all of this, the assumption is that you're going to be in good health when you die 
quite alert and have your wits about you and basically having everything happen in a straightforward, very uncomplicated way. So now let's look at some of the alternatives because really it's, I mean, you can't know, right? You can't know if your body is going to degenerate. You can't know if your mind is going to degenerate. And really, that's the difference, you know. If you had a choice, which one would it be? Your body or your mind? Cognitive degeneration or physical degeneration? One of the common ways we die is through organ failure. Right? You're going along. You have a heart attack. You have heart failure. You have a pain in the chest. And all of a sudden, your heart stops beating. And then you black out because you got no oxygen going through your blood and then you die. Right? It's this very it's this very quick process. And we could even say that that's one of our metrics. Do you want a sudden death or do you want a slow death? Do you want to see it coming or not coming? A lot of people die from cancer. Cancer is a big killer. And that is quite brutal. Because it can eat away at your organs, it can eat away at your fat, your muscle, it can lose function of your body, of your bones, and you basically become a zombie before you die. Some people do die from drug overdoses, or things going wrong with their medications. People die from suffocation, things going wrong with their lungs. Right? With fluids in the lungs. Lungs are quite complicated organs. And of course, they're critical, right? You can't live without your lungs. Some people die in comas. They have things shut down in the body and they go into a coma. They don't see it coming. And then, of course, there's a whole host of diseases. And a lot of the time, or some of the time, they just can't tell what the disease is. That's one of the stresses of old age, is that they can't find out what's wrong with you. That is actually very common. We have this notion that, well, science and medicine is at this point where we can identify all of the problems, all the diseases. We know all about the organs. We know all about the cancers. We've got all these treatments Right, all this chemo, all this pills, chemicals, drugs, all of it, right? With with the mass of all that, you think, well, there's going to always be a solution. There's always going to be something that can help me. And yet the reality is a lot of people find themselves in the situation where the doctors don't know. And they sort of have this choice of, okay, well, we can try this drug, but it might not work. We could try this drug, but it might not work. And that's a choice, right? That's a tricky choice. And it's not just a one-off choice. It has consequences that leads to other things. And it's a choice that you might be making again and again multiple times.
So let's take a look at some more metrics. And I think here's a big one. Here's one that regardless of all these different situations, you need to take on for yourself, which is that you want to diet not by your own hand. You want to die by natural causes, whatever that means. And that takes a kind of trust, is to trust, well, am I going to have what I need? Am I going to allow this process? Is death really so unforgiving? Is death really so torturous? There are assumptions under that. And do you want to know you're going to die or not? Because another big underlying assumption from all this is that, well, you can see it coming. And a lot of people do sense that their death is coming. Do you want to donate your body to science or not? Do you want to donate your organs? Do you want to be cremated or buried? You want to sort out your will and your testament. Do you want to have any idea of who you're going to outlive? Now, this is a this is a funny little metric that you can actually put onto a lot of your relationships because as you get older if you ever if you ever speak to someone who's in their 80s their 90s their hundreds these people a lot of what they talk about and a lot of the people that they talk about are actually dead the majority the majority of the people that they know are dead now you realize as a young person well how many people have i known who have died personally it must it must be less than 10 i'd really have to think about it i think if i wanted to get more than 10 people that i had known and met personally who had died who have died but you realize at old age everyone you've known almost everyone you've known has died. They're all gone. And some people actually take that as a as a attitude, right? They say, ah, I don't want to live too long because I don't want to have to deal with the grief of losing my friends and my family. And here's another question, which is sort of a big question. What sort of legacy do you want to leave? And let me tell you that the chances, the most likely outcome of this is that you will have no legacy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is actually something that people can consciously work with. In fact, I know people who who are actively against leaving a legacy they they actually work to not leave a legacy 
all of the work that you do will be obsolete. Most likely. Right? You think my you think my grandma feels that her sales job made an impact on the world? Not really. But it meant something to her, right? The personal experience, of course, was still meaningful. But it's not like she's thinking, oh, I really made a difference in people's lives by doing that sales job. And you must realize that that also applies to you even if you do have this big job, right? This big high-paying job with all this influence, even if it's like with policies or with big money or with big infrastructure. All of this will become obsolete. Most likely you will see it become obsolete before you die. And you might still live under this idea of, oh, I've left a legacy. I've built something. Something has grown on from me, right? My business has continued to grow or my company or my work or whatever it is. But let me tell you, if you really look into that, you see that that is an illusion. You really only have your connection to your life. No one's really going to be, no, no one's really going to be thanking the founder, right? People don't go to bed at night th- praying, "Oh, thank you, Mister Founder, for the company I now work in." Ah, I'm so grateful towards you. And really, that is a big one, right? This thing of legacy. There's a lot that we can do to discuss that. We could probably go much deeper. But to move on now, let's look at some of the metrics of dying itself. We'll go over this quickly, but just to to look at this and say, how would you frame this? And what sort of words would you use to describe this? So, these are just a few words that I've got that come to mind. Would you want to say that your death is transcendent? Does it mean something to you? To have death as a transcendent experience. Would you say that your death or death is an accumulative experience? And really the opposite of that would be a degenerative experience. Do you become more and more of something as you get closer towards your death? Or do you become less and less of something as you get towards your death? Is death climactic? Is death peaceful? Is death relaxed? Is it a relaxing experience? Is it new? Is it fresh? This is sort of related to what we were saying before about learning. Is death 
an experience of alertness. Right? You don't necessarily want to be distracted when you're dying. And death is sort of one of those things that really does bring you into a deep alertness, right? What brings about alertness is the need to focus on something. And when something important arises, when something is important, it sort of forces you. You really have to pay attention to this. You really have to listen to this. And the weight of the experience depends on, well, how deep you can come into that alertness and what's deeper than death. What's more important than, well, your fatality, your mortality. So you can find a very deep, I imagine, alertness. What about just being comfortable? What about being reverent? Having reverence. And what about being existential? Right? Where does God come into this? Where does the cosmos come into this? You might say, well, I don't believe in Christianity or I don't believe in God. It's like, well, okay, great. But what about existence? Do you believe in existence? What about the stars? What about your picture of the grand grandness of this ancient universe? And what about, lastly, mysteriousness or mysticism? How is that going to be a component of your death? Now, there's one thing that we've missed out from here, one thing that we haven't mentioned, which really can change the whole game, the whole thing. And this is humor, or humor and comedy. And it might be that you can use your death in your last days as an immense moment of humor. And to make people laugh, right? <laughs> I'm sort of, I can't remember where this story comes from, but I remember the story of someone who's sort of going in for critical surgery and it's a risky operation. And just as the nurse is putting them under anesthetic, anesthesia, anesthetics, anesthesia, I don't know what the word is, but just as they're going under, he turns to the doctor and says, and doc, don't, if you make a mistake, don't worry because... Everyone's bound to die sooner or later, and, and everyone laughs, right? <laughs> it's almost like it's, it's just like making light of that situation. Now, now that's not really even a joke, right? That's not even clever humor, right? It's not like they've, that guy's thought up that joke and said it. It's, it's just that in that situation, it, it was extremely funny because of how serious it is, right? It's the, it's obviously flipped the seriousness because, you know, oh, it's serious. You know, he might not survive this. And there's so much pressure on the surgery and, oh, you know, like this whole, this whole seriousness and solemnness needs a, a burst. 
And if you can really make a joke of it, right, <laughs> if you can really embody that, that, then that's an amazing thing. And there's a lot of hospital humor, right? That's a whole category unto itself. So, do you want to be able to do that for yourself? Do you want to be able to have that in your relationships? And of course, that's something that takes practice. You need to be able to remember that, right? If you remember, oh, I need to be having some humor every now and then, and I need to think up some jokes for the nurses and my friends. You know what? My friend is coming to see me, and they know I'm dying. What can I say that's going to make light of the situation, right? (laughs) So you can't even turn it into a kind of work. (laughs) But that's just something that can really change the whole thing. It's sort of your, your... a tool in your toolkit. And all of these things are tools, right? All of these metrics are things you want to be aware of in so many ways. And and this is not an exhaustive list, right? The examples that I'm giving here, the ideas that I'm giving, they're really the tip of the iceberg. Any one of these lists, we can extend on, out, right? We can extend out attitude. We can extend out, you know, situation. We can extend out memory. We can extend out the experience or the quality. We can extend out existentialism. These are just, these are all tips of icebergs in a whole sea of icebergs in so many ways. Now, let's take another approach to this because up until now, we've sort of dealt with the moment of death and the couple of moments leading up to it. So let's work back from there. Think, how are you going to feel on the morning of your death? So this is the day that you die and you wake up. And what about the day before? This is your last full day alive. You know that tomorrow you're going to die. Now, it might be in that situation you think, ah, I need to get out and live while I still can, right? (laughs) But what's most likely going to happen is, well, you're actually not going to do much. It's already going to be too late for going out and living. And what about a week before you die? Say you've got about one week to live. How are you going to feel? What are you going to think? How is that going to affect you? Of course, it's going to be different to the morning of your death. Because over a week, well, feelings can change quite a lot. Thoughts can change quite a lot. And what about a month before you die? Say four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Now that's a little bit longer than just a week, isn't it? Now you're getting to the sort of area or length of time where you might not even be sure how long it's going to be before you die. And what about a year before you die? Say you've got a year to live. Let's, let, let's say, well, the diagnosis has come. The doctor's sat you down. I say you've got cancer and you've got a year to live. 
Now, of course, that has its own complications, right? Well, what is the nature of the cancer? What is the nature of the treatment? What is my condition going to be like? But, of course, a year before you die is very different to the morning before you die. And it does depend a lot on the condition or whatever it is that is bringing about your death. But just say someone's told you you've got a year to live. What about five years before you die? Now, when you get to this sort of timeline, you can't really know, right? If we're talking five years, it's harder and harder to predict. Well, is it really five years? What if it's ten years? And how would you feel ten years before you die? Say say you're 70 And somehow a guardian angel was able to tell you, well, you're going to die when you're 80. And it might be different how you feel 10 years before you die, whether you're 70 or 60 or 50. What about 20 years before you die? How old will you be in 20 years, first of all? And say you live to the age of 80. How long is it until you are 60? Because that will be 20 years before your death. How many years until you turn 60? Imagine you turn 60 and you think, I might only have 20 years left to live. And of course you wouldn't... You wouldn't take that, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, only 20 years to live. (laughs) And now, take a look at how you feel now. About your death. Imagine... You have, from now until the rest of your life, to live. And just notice that this moment is a moment before your death. How you feel right now is what you feel before your death. However many years and decades off into the future it is. Now ask yourself, how might that attitude change? How might that feeling change? Because you realize that all the things we're discussing, they are the components of your experience. Everything that you're experiencing now is going to be present when you die. You're going to have thoughts. You're going to have sight. You're going to be able to look out your eyes. 
You're going to have relationships. You're going to be in a room. Right? How much variety of difference is there for you in the different rooms that you are in? And it might be, in your old age, you think there's this huge difference between being in a hospital and being in your own home. That is a world of difference. And it might be that now you don't really see a difference in a place. You can't really sense the difference of a room, this room or that room, this house or that house. You don't really appreciate that so much. And to realize that what you're working with is what you've got right now is the connection between your life and your death. Now, there is another deeper underlying assumption that we've been operating under, and this is one we need to now uncover. And the assumption has been up until now that actually you've lived a long and fruitful life that is fulfilling and you don't really have any big regrets. And the sad truth is that many people do reach the end of their life with cold, black, heavy regret. They have pain, they have decay, they have broken relationships, they have powerlessness, they have discomfort, and they have weakness. And not just weakness of the physical nature, they have weakness of the heart, weakness of their mind. Weakness of their will. Weakness of their awareness. Weakness of their emotions, of their attitudes. A weakness of their intelligence. And I mean intelligence in the most broadest sense. In every kind of intelligence. And there is something very grim about death. It is so easy to fall into the hopelessness and the pain and the weakness. And my proposal to you is, well, would you rather be able to deal with that Would you rather be able to be strong enough to deal with your weakness? Would you rather be intelligent enough to deal with your lack of intelligence?
And that is, of course, something that takes practice. All of these things are things that take practice. To deal with hardship. That really is the most inspiring thing. That really is the thing that's going to bring people into your life. When you're going through hardship and you can't deal with it, you rely on other people. And it's not that there's anything wrong with relying on people. That's its own sort of metrics. Because relying on something or someone with a way of understanding, with a way of connection, with a way of really being open to them, that is very different to relying on them out of desperation. Because you can rely on someone and it can lead to resentment. It can lead to a distaste. And you can rely on someone and that can lead to a very beautiful connection that can lead to trust. That can lead to gratitude. Thank you for allowing me to help you. I'm glad to have been of service. And really, for you to have pain, for you to have weakness, for you to have things going against you in so many ways, and yet to be okay with it, and not just okay with it, but to really see through it, to really make their way, to to really make your way, for for you to be someone who really makes their way through the darkness, and to remain positive and to remain aware. That that is a truly inspiring story, right? And that's that's really sort of the ABC sort of quintessential cancer story, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I have a whole series on a commentary on Grace and Grit, which is an amazing story. But that's that's an amazing story. And all of those cancer survival stories are are just so impactful because you see someone who you just think, man, if I had to go through that, I would just be broken. I would be torn to shreds. And yet this person is brave, strong, optimistic, still outgoing, still happy to connect with others. There's, there's a lesson in that. There's a wisdom in that which is so intangible and yet undeniable. That is a personal wealth that is so powerful. That must be one of the most powerful qualities that a human being can have. And it really is fundamental to our situation. Because life is full of suffering. And the ultimate answer to suffering is glory. The only choice we have is to come out of our suffering and to live up to that glory. So, those are a few metrics on 
death dynamics or the affairs of death. And it is just something to consider. It is just sort of another way into personal knowledge and, I guess, self-knowledge. It's food for thought. And I don't tend to, I don't mean to get so serious, right? I thought of <laughs> I mentioned humor and I mentioned how well we're taking a different approach, but turns out I did get a little bit more serious. But maybe I should tell a joke to finish, but <laughs> I think that's all right. So something to think about and leave me a comment. What do you think what do you imagine your death to be like? What do you imagine you would want to feel about yourself, about your life, and what sort of experience of the moment would you like to have? So, thanks very much for tuning in, and that's all I have to say for now.